morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you again, and it's such an honor, highest honor, really, to be asked to preach on this most uh, glorious of subjects, the crucifixion, the cross of Christ. Well, the kings and queens of the United Kingdom are presented at their coronation with a golden sphere. It weighs just over a kilo, and they call it the orb. The orb, you may have seen this. It's adorned with 375 pearls, 365 diamonds, 18 rubies, 9 emeralds, 9 sapphires, 1 amethyst, and a piece of polished glass. It's quite a bit of bling, this orb. And it represents the planet Earth that we live on. And set on top of it is a cross. And when it's placed in the monarch's right hand, the Archbishop of Canterbury says these words, Receive this orb set under the cross and remember that the whole world is subject to the power and empire of Christ our Redeemer. What a thing. What a thing. Death by crucifixion, long dreaded as the grimmest, cruelest, most terrifying, most distressing, and most painful form of capital punishment ever devised, unequaled for public shame and humiliation, now depicted on top of the world and majestically bejeweled. Nations, empires, political uh, alliances, dominions, superpowers, the cross towers over all of them. What is it about the cross? What is it? It's, it's a shocking miscarriage of justice of an innocent man, as we saw last week. It is the most tragic and criminally unjust judicial murder in history. But it's much more than that. How do you explain the fierce opposition against the cross that still exists today? When ISIS spread murderously all over Iraq and Syria a few years ago, one of the first things they did in every town they went to where there was a church was to smash the cross from the roof of the church. Satan hates the cross still today. Even in the UK, with its orb as part of the crown jewels, we have heard of Christians who have been bullied and demoted and even sacked for wearing a cross around their neck at work. In fact, there's a case going through the courts at the moment contesting that very issue. People want to censor the cross today. A few years ago, the supermarket chain Lidl airbrushed out a cross on the roof of a Greek church that featured on its yogurt packaging. People are uncomfortable with the cross. And as we draw towards a conclusion today in this series of highlights in the Gospel of Luke, we find ourselves at the cross, this instrument of death that was abolished centuries ago, but which still today inspires so much uneasiness, so much fear, so much hostility, but for us, 
as we've demonstrated this morning. So much worship. There are over 40 different verses in the New Testament that specifically point out that the death of Jesus is for us. It's in our place. I'm not going to read all 40. It would take too long. Here are just five of them. Luke 22, 20. This is my body. This is my blood given for you. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ became a curse for us. Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But Luke's gospel, from which I'm going to read in a moment, uh, this may surprise you, actually. It says nothing at all about what the crucifixion means. In fact, none of the Gospels do. I once uh, went into a DVD rental store. Do you remember those? They used to exist a long time ago, didn't they? And I was struck, this was in France, I was struck by noticing that Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ was listed in the horror section. Not the history, not the religious, the horror section. And it is, it is a harrowing film. If you've ever seen it, it's difficult to watch in places. And I'm sure it's an accurate portrayal of Christ's sufferings. But neither Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John sensationalized the passion the way Mel Gibson did. There's no gruesome detail at all in the Gospels. There's no appeal to the emotions. All four of them simply report in an almost matter-of-fact sort of way the bare facts, and in particular, how the different uh, people who witnessed it interacted with what they saw. Well, let's read it then. It's Luke 23, 26 to 49. I think it's going to appear on the screen. You may have a Bible and follow it in your own Bible as well. If not, there are some at the back if you'd like to help yourself to one. Matthew 20, sorry, Luke 23, 26. As the soldiers led Jesus away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood there watching 
And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written, a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. But the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Heavenly Father, the flowers may fade and the grass will wither, but the word of our God stand forever. Thank you so much for your word. And we pray now as we look into what we've just read, that you may meet with us in a new way, in a personal way. And may we meet with you in your word. Amen. Well, how did we get here? How did it possibly come to pass that the loveliest life the world has ever seen was terminated in the ghastliest fashion mankind has yet devised? Jesus, remember, had challenged his enemies, saying, which of you can find a fault in me? And nobody could utter a word. Total silence. And that was his enemies. And as we saw last Sunday when Steve shared with us all the charges against him during his trial were manifestly false. He was clearly innocent of everything they accused him of. His judge said again and again at his trial that he found the case against him without merit and he dismissed it. And still they crucified him. How did we get there? Not even the most powerful man in Judea, that region at the time, Pontius Pilate, not even he could stop it. And Jesus didn't try to get out of it. Jesus accepted the cross. In fact, he had predicted it on several occasions. Indeed, he planned it. Sometimes people ask, why do good things happen, bad things happen to good people? But as R.C. Sproul once said, that only ever happened once. 
and he volunteered. Before they finally succeeded in killing Jesus, there were no less than five, I've counted in the Gospels, five failed assassination attempts on his life. Matthew 2.16, Herod tried to kill him when he was a baby in Bethlehem with a sword. Matthew 4.5-6, Satan tried to kill him during his temptations by taking him to the temple and trying to get him to jump off a roof and kill himself. In Luke 4, the locals at Nazareth, his hometown, tried to kill him by throwing him off a cliff. In John 8, 59, the Pharisees in Jerusalem tried to kill him by picking up rocks and stone him alive. And then two chapters later in John 10, Judeans in Jerusalem attempt the same thing. They tried to stone him, and each time they failed to kill him. They, they didn't manage because Jesus alone decides when he's going to die, how he's going to die, and where he's going to die. Jesus alone decides that. Jesus had already said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And even there on the cross, beaten up and pinned to his cross with iron spikes like this one, looking utterly crushed and totally defeated. For Jesus, it is all going exactly to plan. Well, Luke's narrative here that I just read to you mentions quite a large cast of characters. There's Simon from Cyrene. There's a crowd of women who speak to him. There are low-ranking soldiers who have the gruesome job of driving these things through his arms, uh, his wrists and his ankles. And there are two condemned men, one each side of him. There are some religious rulers who turn up to sneer at him, and a Roman centurion. And there are various other passers-by, Luke tells us, who stop to watch and observe what is happening. Well, if you had been there that day and had been unfortunate enough to witness what went on, what would you have made of it all? What would you have said? What would you have done? Of all the characters around the cross, which one would you most likely to have been? We'll start with Simon in verse 26. The soldiers grab this man, Simon from Cyrene, and they make him carry the crossbar of Jesus' cross behind Jesus, whose strength is failing. He's had nothing to eat. He's been deprived of sleep. He's been subjected to a Roman flogging, and it's all too much to him. He falls to the ground, and they make Simon carry his crossbar. Now, in Roman-occupied Judea, at the time, any citizen at any time could be pressed into service by a Roman official and be forced to walk a thousand paces or a mile. You get this tap on the shoulder from a Roman spear and you do what they say. Well, everyone resented it, understandably, and people only ever complied with having to do this grudgingly. This is why Jesus said, if they make you walk a mile, walk two. 
Now, Cyrene, where Simon comes from, is in modern-day Libya. It's over a 1,000 miles away. I've checked on Google Maps. Uh, now Simon is more than likely visiting Jerusalem at that time to celebrate the Passover. Maybe he's saved up for years to finally go to the city of David and uh, experience one of his great festivals they had. And after his long journey all the way from North Africa, he finds himself ordered uh, at spear point by his oppressor to carry a 50-kilo blood-stained plank of wood that's got the smell of death all over it. I'd understand a bit if Simon Cyrene was a bit hacked off, if he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder about that. And maybe some of us have felt a little bit like he did at that moment. Do you ever wonder to yourself, what on earth am I doing here in church? Has following Jesus ever become for you an an inconvenience? Are you weary of it? Is it just become a chore following Jesus? Have you become less willing to count the cost and take up your cross and follow Jesus? Less willing than you used to. Or maybe you identify a bit more with one of the women in the story. Verses 27 to 31, they meet Jesus on his way to his execution and their hearts just break with compassion and pity for him and they see this poor man getting beaten up and they cannot help but feel for him and they begin to sob maybe you're a bit like one of those women when you think about the cross you just see the unfairness of it the injustice of it And you feel sorry for that nice man who's just suffering so badly. But Jesus doesn't want pity. He doesn't want sympathy. He says, don't cry for my sake. Cry for yourselves. What a thing to say. He's saying that this is more than just a really bad day for one man. This is actually the tragedy of an entire nation rejecting its Messiah. Weep for yourselves. And Jesus knows that around 40 years later, 70 AD, the Romans are going to besiege the city of Jerusalem. They're going to besiege it for two years, and then they're going to pound it to dust. Days of terror and carnage are going to follow in the very city that this is happening in. And Jesus says here that the consequences of rejecting the Messiah will make women wish they never brought children into the world to see it. If people do these things, he says, when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus says this in Aramaic. It's translated into Greek, and then later it's put into English. In our translations, it loses a little bit in translation. It means this. If this is how the Roman military treats the innocent, how do you think they're going to punish the guilty? Those who reject the Messiah. Jesus is not looking for sympathy at the cross. He wants me, he wants you to see the bigger picture that 
It's not just about what happened to him. It's about what it means for you and for me. So ask God to open your eyes today to see that the cross, the cross is about you. This is your story as well. You are part of this story. And if you had been the only person spiritually lost on the whole earth, he would have still gone through the whole ordeal just for you. He loves you that much. So some resent him, Simon of Cyrene. Some pity him, the women. Others just mock him. Verse 35, the unbelieving religious leaders just show their contempt of Jesus. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is God's Messiah, the chosen one, you can almost hear them spitting the words out. And the soldiers in verses 36 to 38 just find it funny, just an amusement for them. If you, you, are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Some people today, I see them sometimes on social media, uh, love an opportunity to ridicule Christianity, to sneer at Christians. Sadly, honestly, we sometimes deserve to be the butt of some people's jokes. But at times, I read comments and there's just contempt there. There's almost hatred behind it. And these are the people who surely would have taunted Jesus as he made his way to the cross and as he hung there. Probably none of us here today can relate to those who laugh and jeer at Jesus as he hangs there dying. Why on earth would we be here this morning? But maybe there's just one person here today. It might be the first time you've ever been here, first time you've ever been in a church at all, and it just seems like a bit of a joke to you. Or perhaps one day, somebody will hear the recording of this talk or overhear it. Someone who just dismisses Jesus as a great laughingstock, who uses his name as an expletive. Listen, Jesus leads the greatest and numerically strongest movement this world has ever seen. His worldwide church is still growing. Every day it grows bigger. Jesus has no peer, no rival, no equal. He has laughed off every failed attempt to sideline him. Many more millions of people will leave everything they have to follow Jesus long after you and I are dead and forgotten. So don't risk an eternity of darkness and unquenchable thirst and bitter Regret, separated forever from God. Turn to Christ today. Come humbly to Jesus, to Christ crucified in repentance and faith. 750 years before Jesus was born, it was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53 that Jesus would be, the Messiah would be put to death with the wicked. And all four Gospels affirm that Jesus was indeed crucified between two thugs. But Luke alone tells us what they said when they were dying. In verse 39, it says, one of them hurled insults at him. If you were really any kind of Messiah, he says, 
You'd get yourself out of this predicament, and if you were worth the time of day, you'd get us out of it as well. This is, in fact, a quite commonplace way of talking to Jesus. Some Messiah, where were you when I was overlooked for that promotion and pay rise? What kind of saviour were you when I ended up in A&E that day? If you really were the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, how come you can't even make my bus come on time? But Jesus is not your domestic servant and is not mine either. He is worthy of praise and honour and glory precisely because he can call a thunderstorm to stop with one word of authority and yet he reduces to use his power, his awesome power to come down from the cross because he loves you and he loves me. He stays there for us. In verses 39 to 43, there is one of the most amazing conversations in the entire Bible. Both Matthew and Mark agree that both rebels begin by heaping insults on Jesus from the cross. But at some point during the six hours of crucifixion, one of them has a change of heart. Luke tells us about it. When did it happen? Was it when he heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them? They do not know what they're doing. Maybe it doesn't say when he changed his heart. I imagine this convicted criminal looking up at the sign above his head and the sign above the other's heads. Their signs uh, informed onlookers of the crimes for which they were being punished. Above his own head, it says violent robbery. Above his mate's head, violent robbery. And he confesses the sin in his life. He says, we're we're just getting what our deeds deserve. I'm a sinner, he says. I am a thief. I did it. I admit it. It wasn't the bad crowd I got into when I was young. It wasn't some genetic predisposition in me to get into crime. It wasn't my parents' fault or the teacher's fault or the rough neighborhood I grew up in. There are no excuses. I plead guilty. I have, I deserve this. I have broken God's laws. We're getting what our deeds deserve. And then he looks up at the sign above Jesus' head. This, it says, is the king of the Jews. That's the crime for which he's being crucified. Meant to be ironic. Meant to be sarcastic. His head He's crowned, but with thorns. His hair is matted in blood. But in a moment of grace and faith, this thief, he sees it. This man actually is a real king. Jesus is the only perfect and flawless life ever lived. And in a moment of spiritual insight, this thief, he gets it. He sees it. This man has done nothing wrong, he says. He looks at this exhausted, blood-stained, dying man next to him. And unbelievably, he can see the big picture. This is not the end of Jesus. 
He says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He believes that Jesus is yet going to reign and rule in a kingdom. What amazing faith he has. And Jesus answers him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So listen, no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, no matter who you are, no matter how big the mess is you've made of your life, it is not so beyond the pale that Jesus cannot clean it up. Hallelujah. And this hopeless dying thief is all the proof you need, is all the proof we need that it's never too late to admit your sin and turn to Jesus in faith. In the New Testament, hell is described as a dark place, a lonely place, a thirsty place, and a godless place. And each time it's on the lips of Jesus, you hear it. And on the cross, Jesus endured darkness, abandonment, thirst, and separation from God. He literally went through hell as he took upon himself your guilt and mine. But because he died for the sins of the whole world, remember that orb, the whole world, nobody needs to end up in hell. You, me, like that repentant thief, can be with the king forever in paradise. An amazing thing. Finally, the centurion. In verse 47, it says, The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Mark's gospel quotes him in full and says, Surely this was the Son of God. So what happened to make this centurion say that? What is it he saw that made him think, This has got to be the Son of God then? Luke says... It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And he says the curtain of the temple was torn in two at 3 p.m., the exact moment when the Passover lamb was slain to atone for sin. Has this ever struck you that when, when Jesus was born... The sky at midnight was bright with glory. But when he died, it was dark at midday. Because he's the light of the world. For three whole hours, in fact, it went eerily dark until Jesus bowed his head and died at three o'clock. And then as soon as he died, it brightened up again. And that's what the centurion saw. And in a moment of grace and faith, he literally saw the light. Well, who are you in this story? Do you find yourselves at times to be a bit annoyed to be associated with Jesus? A bit press ganged into it against your will? Do you find yourself feeling sorry for Jesus, but not really getting it that his death is 
for you? Do you find yourself ever laughing at it all? If not now, have you ever done that? Or do you find yourself seeing your sin, recognizing it, acknowledging it, and thanking Jesus for his amazing, comprehensive forgiveness? We're going to share communion in a moment. You'll find one of those on your chair. And we do this to remember the Lord's sufferings for us. And as we do this, we renew our allegiance to him as our king. And we also renew our love for one another as his beloved bride, as brothers and sisters. This is holy ground. Should have taken my shoes off. It is holy ground. Um, the musicians are going to lead us in, in worship. But as they get ready to do that, um, uh, Graham and see, I want to just share a true story with you. Some years ago, a Chinese church leader called Alan Yuan was arrested and imprisoned because of his faith in Christ. He was 44 years old when he disappeared. And his wife had to raise their six children. They were aged from six to 17. She had to raise them all on her own and also care for an elderly mother. And Yuan was in jail for 21 years. And throughout that whole time, he never saw his family, never heard from them. They never heard from him. He had no Christian fellowship whatsoever. He didn't even have a Bible, didn't even see a Bible in incarceration. Conditions were really harsh. Sometimes uh, the temperature dropped to minus 29, but he was never ill. He suffered terrible isolation. And all that time, people urged his wife to remarry. They said, Yuan must have, must have died. It's been 21 years she actually had several proposals of marriage. She refused each time, saying she would never remarry until she had concrete proof her husband was dead. When he was finally released from prison, he was in his mid-60s by now, and he'd missed all his children growing up to adulthood. He'd missed his wife, obviously, and life was hard for her too. But whenever would pe people would talk to Alan Yuan about the high price he paid for following Jesus and all the suffering he had endured, he would simply start beaming with joy and point upwards and say, nothing, nothing compared to the cross.